Before we start the show, quick reminder, all the political reporting you hear us talk about in the show, you can also hear it in NPR One, along with all your favorite podcasts and news from your local public radio station. Find NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of political news. Two debates down, one to go. Donald Trump is unshackled and the subject of new allegations of sexual misconduct, unwanted kissing and touching. We'll talk about that and WikiLeaks, plus some listener mail and what we just can't let go this week. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign, mostly the Clinton campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter covering Donald Trump. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. All right. So, Ron... Here is a direct quote from you in our second debate recap episode of Monday on Monday of this week. You were talking about how insane and unprecedented 2016 has been. And here's the quote. I suspect the next thing that's really going to matter is something we can't anticipate, but will happen in the next couple or three days. Prescient, Ron. Prophetic. Always. I, I, I'm just, I'm not going to try to add anything to that today. I'm just going <laughs> to go with that. Yeah, so that was three days ago. And since then, there have been multiple reports from multiple news organizations featuring accusations of sexual misconduct against Donald Trump. So this all blew up Wednesday evening when the New York Times broke a story about two women who said they had unwanted sexual encounters with Donald Trump. Jessica Leeds told The Times that Trump groped her on an airplane. Another woman who worked at Trump Tower says Trump kissed her on the mouth. Leeds spoke to The Times in a video. She described getting onto a flight to New York in the early 1980s and sitting in first class next to Donald Trump. It wasn't until they cleared the meal that somehow or another the armrest in, in the seat disappeared and it was a real shock when all of a sudden his hands were all over me. He started encroaching on my space and I hesitate to use this expression but I'm going to and that is he was like an octopus. It was like he had six arms. He was all over the place. And if he had stuck with the upper part of the body I, I might not have gotten I might not have gotten that upset, but it's when he started putting his hand up my skirt. And that was it. So it's tough to listen to. As the night wore on last night, more stories posted and others resurfaced. There was a BuzzFeed report that described when Trump owned the Miss Teen USA pageant in the 90s, he would walk in unannounced to the dressing room where girls as young as 15 were getting dressed. BuzzFeed just posted an update saying now five contestants have come forward with the same accounts. There's also a story in the Palm Beach Post that quoted a woman who said Trump groped her at his Mar-a-Lago resort 13 years ago. And People magazine published a long first-person account by one of its writers who claimed that while she was writing a profile of Trump and his pregnant wife Melania in 2005, he cornered the author in an empty room, pushed her up against a wall, and kissed her. So, um... It's been a flood. The dam breaks. And, and, and when the dam breaks, of course, the reservoir of stories untold uh, come flowing out. A uh, big question a lot of people have is how, why now? Because I know that question gets asked every time something new happens with Donald Trump. But in this particular instance, I think there was a very specific trigger. And that was in the debate on Sunday night when Anderson Cooper said 
sir, you're saying this is just locker room talk. Are you denying ever having done such things? Just for the record, though, are you saying that what you said on that bus 11 years ago, that you did not actually kiss women without consent or grope women without consent? I have great respect for women. Nobody has more respect for women than I do. So for the record, said, you're saying you never did that. I said things that, frankly, you, you hear these things, I said, and I was embarrassed by it, but I have tremendous respect for women. Have you ever and done those things? women have respect for me. And I will tell you, no, I have not. And I will tell you that... Yeah, so Anderson Cooper really just safe. pressed on and pressed on yes. and pressed on. And if you look at these articles that have come out, every one of them says something like, and then I saw the debate and it triggered something. Mm-hmm. And right. then I saw the debate and I called you the New York Times. Yeah. The actions that many of these women describe are very similar to the actions that Donald Trump himself describes in that 2005 tape. Kissing women he's just met, uh, grabbing their genitals. Of course, he said he didn't really do that. That was just yeah. talk. But yeah. but these women are saying he did just that. And, and Sarah, what is the Trump campaign saying about this? Well, Trump talked to The New York Times as they were reporting this story. He angrily denied the whole story. And the campaign put out a statement in response that says, This entire article is fiction and for The New York Times to launch a completely false, coordinated character assassination against Mr. Trump on a topic like this is dangerous. To reach back decades in an attempt to smear Mr. Trump trivializes sexual assault and it sets a new low for where the media is willing to go in its efforts to determine this election. It goes on to say it is absurd to think that one of the most recognizable business leaders on the planet with a strong record of empowering women in his companies would do the things alleged in this story. His campaign has also said that that they're looking at a, a lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit. So um, they're, you know, they're coming back, punching hard, but there isn't a lot of time left in the next few weeks. I would just hazard the guess that this is not a case that will ever see a courtroom. This is not a case that will be pursued past the election. This is the kind of thing that uh, a campaign does when it feels that it has to have a response to a set of allegations. You demand a retraction and you say we want the newspaper uh, to not only retract the story, but we also are going to file a defamation suit and we want their money. And then, of course, that goes nowhere because in the end, it's extraordinarily difficult to sue for libel unless it can be shown that you knew perfectly well that your story was absolutely false when you published it, which is nearly impossible to do. And with a public figure such such as Donald Trump, the paper will simply claim privilege. They know this all and they know that this is never going to court. But this is the standard response. And we should say the New York Times is standing by its story and they've said, you know, this is public service journalism. And as we're recording this, Donald Trump has been speaking in West Palm. Beach, Florida, and we we have a few clips here. The most powerful weapon deployed by the Clintons is the corporate media, the press. This is him clearly responding to the New York Times. Yeah. Let's be clear on one thing. The corporate media in our country is no longer involved in journalism. They're a political Special interest, no different than any lobbyist or other financial entity with a total political agenda. And the agenda is not for you, it's for themselves. And their agenda is to elect crooked Hillary Clinton at any cost, at any price, no matter how many lives they destroy. For them, it's a war. And for them, nothing at all is out of bounds. This is a struggle for the survival 
of our nation. Believe me. And this will be our last chance to save it on November 8th. Remember that. Strong words. Very strong words. So that's like war of The worlds. worlds. Yeah. The establishment and their media enablers wield control over this nation through means that are very well known. Anyone who challenges their control is deemed a sexist, a racist, a xenophobe, and morally deformed. They will attack you. They will slander you. They will seek to destroy your career and your family. They will seek to destroy everything about you, including your reputation. They will lie, lie, lie. And then again, they will do worse than that. They will do whatever's necessary. The Clintons are criminals. Remember that. They're criminals. So is he saying that the Clintons are lying about him or that the media is lying or about that him? It's all just in cahoots together. Both, I think, yeah. And that it's that basically the media are an arm of in lockstep with the Clintons and it's all yeah. the establishment. That was just really dark, Sarah. It was dark. And I mean, it's the kind of thing we hear from Trump a lot in terms of, you know, attacking the media, attacking the establishment. But it just it, it feels like he's been turning up the, te- the temperature in, in recent weeks. Uh, I heard some of that this week in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, right after the second debate. And, and I think, yeah, I think we're hearing, uh, you know, Trump is clearly frustrated and upset about this, these reports, and, and he's lashing out. And also, while we've been in the studio, Michelle Obama also weighed in on, on sort of the latest Trump revelations. Uh, she was campaigning for Hillary Clinton. Uh, here's a little tape of that. This was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, (laughs) it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this, and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel. It's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts. It, it, it hurts. She sounds almost emotional there. She sounds angry and hurt. And she's saying what a lot of women are saying, and not just Democratic women. I mean, I've been hearing these kinds of emotions from Republican women, too. Uh, doesn't mean they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but this is upsetting. I just feel like, I know I personally feel this, and I'm sure a lot of folks in the country feel like we weren't supposed to be talking about this. No one wanted it to go in this kind of gutter. But it's like now that we're here, I mean, it's just so, How I don't see any light here? anymore. It can't be over soon enough. Here's what I find interesting. Trump's whole MO with all these allegations is that all the women are lying. But when he talks about allegations against Bill Clinton, all those women are telling the truth. And when he talks about the things that he said before, he says, oh, well, that was 10 years ago. That was 
12 years ago. But with all the Clinton stuff, it was decades ago. Yeah, that's all to be expected, really. I mean, any politician, whether rightly accused or wrongly accused, is basically going to say these same things. Uh, it is pretty rare that we get this kind of an array of people being willing to take on a powerful political figure, a powerful business figure, this, this prominent figure in American culture, uh, under any circumstances, which surely had something to do with why they didn't make any kind of a complaint at the time, assuming that all their accounts are correct. So this is an unusual moment. We are in some pretty uncharted waters. So how does this bubbling up of all of these accusations, how does that affect or interact with the stated and restated Trump strategy of bringing up accusations against Bill Clinton? Apparently, the plan being to do even more of it. But that was before this well, and, 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 you know, Trump has gone back and forth or seemed to go back and forth on how much he wanted to go after Bill Clinton. He sort of hinted in the first debate that he thought about it, but he didn't do it because Chelsea Clinton was there. And then we got the sense that, you know, his campaign was thinking about it. So it sort of dangled it as a possibility we might go after the Clintons. Um, and then his campaign manager at one point, Kellyanne Conway, said, you know, that wouldn't be my advice. But here we are. All of this has sort of split open. Trump is bringing it up, pushing it. I mean, I think, frankly, whether it's a good strategy or not, it's kind of what he has left at this point. I mean, there are all these accusations against him, and he needs to turn the attention back to Hillary Clinton. But the the problem with that, as Sam was alluding to, is it does sort of open him up to this criticism of, you're talking about old allegations at, at the same time that you are dismissing sort of old allegations against yourself. You know, and there's also Steve Bannon in this picture, who is the CEO of the Trump campaign. So Kellyanne Conway's boss, even though she's the campaign manager. And his view clearly has been that they should go there and that Steve Bannon said, we're going to make Bill Clinton into Bill Cosby. And he said that this week was quoted by Bloomberg News saying that this week. So this, this campaign was already in the mud, if you will, and now they are finding themselves in a situation where accusations are coming back at them from a variety of different people over a long period of time. Sam? Question in response to that. You know, I think everyone saw the first half hour or so of the last debate and said, oh, my God, this is the most cringeworthy thing I've ever seen. Does all of this now mean that the whole debate will be that next week? Might well. It might well. Although we do have a long list of subjects. The seriousness of which is not in question, everything from the hot spots around the world, as they call them, to the you know salient economic questions, social security, all the things that people really do care about and we really do there? want to. Well, the problem is it's really up largely to one man, isn't it? It's Chris Wallace to pose the questions and insist that the candidates stick with those questions. But then ultimately it is up to the candidates and they have their strategies. And Chris Wallace is the Fox News anchor who will be moderating this debate. What does this change anything? Um, does this erode Trump's support in any way? Yeah, I mean, for for Trump's hardcore supporters, the kind of people that come to his rallies, certainly this doesn't change anything. Um, you know, I, I spent some time with Trump supporters this week, and uh, I heard everything from, well, he's apologized, and I don't like it, but I'm moving on to, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. Men just talk like that. And I heard this from women. So the bigger question, I think, is, you know, obviously what happens to the to the people in the middle, the swing, the swing voters, the suburban women that, you know, who, who maybe still haven't made up their minds. Uh, that's where this is an issue. But for, for people who are hardcore Trump supporters and have made up their minds, I don't hear a lot of people moving. Yeah. Well, and, and I think 
really what's happening here is suppressing the vote, potentially. That at this point, Donald Trump has a burn it all down strategy. Yeah. And he's not going to turn off his core base of supporters. They're like, yeah. And the other people who are just out there feeling disgusted and sick by all of it may not turn out. They may not vote. It could end up sort of depressing the vote of people who are not his hardcore. Or do the folks that he thinks might not turn out end up saying, I have to vote against a man that I see has done X, Y, Z that I find patently offensive. Well, and that's exactly what the Clinton campaign has been trying to do this week. They um, have really, coming out of that debate, have gone forward trying to win over Republicans, trying to reach people who, you know, before that video and audio tape came out, would have considered voting for Trump, now won't consider it, and they're hoping to capture those votes. They have four new ads up in swing states um, with Republican voters with pretty compelling stories speaking directly to the camera, talking about why they are going to cross party lines and vote for Hillary Clinton. So now we have the Hillary Clinton campaign basically with one hand trying to reach out to Republicans and with the other hand trying still to convince the Sanders supporters who might be on the fence. She's actively reaching for liberals and conservatives at the same time. Not to mention the liberals who've said, forget it, I'm going to vote for Jill Stein. Exactly. But that's the nature of a binary party system. You have two parties and not five, not seven. We don't have lots of flavors. And so basically you go with one or you go with the other. And so the person who wins historically has been the person who did the best job of holding together their own base Mm -hmm. within their own party, Mm -hmm. but reaching out. We all know that the registration of people in the Republican and Democratic parties has fallen dramatically and that now in a lot of states you have more people who consider themselves independents than Democrats or Republicans. So that's what she's really trying to do is reach that group of people. In other news, as we seem to say every week, Trump news is overshadowing Clinton news. We are continuing, though, to see a drip, drip, drip of hacked emails from Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta. The FBI is looking into whether that hack also points to Russia as previous hacks against the DNC and others did. Among the emails from this week, we have Clinton aides debating about whether it was suicidal or not to take press questions. They actually went 275 days without a press conference, so I guess they decided it was okay. We also have Clinton's press secretary writing about information he received from the Justice Department regarding Clinton's State Department emails. Now, Republicans claim that's evidence the Clinton campaign and the Department of Justice were colluding on the FBI investigation of Clinton's email server. But that investigation actually had not started yet at the time that the email was written. And also the email was actually just about scheduling for a hearing in a legal proceeding. And that information was publicly available. Also, CNN commentator and now DNC interim chair Donna Brazil emailed the Clinton campaign before a Democratic town hall with what appeared to be one of the questions that was later asked in that town hall. So... I think, and every time these new email dumps come out, suggesting uh, and confirming the amount of influence that Team Clinton has in D.C. and beyond, it feeds into this narrative that I heard from Bernie Sanders supporters for months when I was following him, that they control the rules, they have too much influence, and they can do whatever they want. You know, I mean, so there was one email, I think, that we talked about that suggested that Team Clinton was trying to play a role in the date of 
the GOP primary yeah, for let, Illinois. Let me explain that. Yeah. So, so it was an email sent in 2014 before Clinton was a candidate from the person who would become her campaign manager to John Podesta. And the email basically said, hey, we're coming up on a deadline. There's a bill that could possibly move the date of the primary in Illinois. Could somebody make a phone call? Um the hope they had was to move the primary in Illinois a little bit later because they said an early Illinois primary would favor a moderate Republican candidate like a Mitt Romney. And they seemingly Didn't wanted want a more conservative yes. candidate. They wanted now, somebody nominated by the southern states that yeah. have come to dominate after Iowa and New Hampshire. They would go to and, South Carolina and, we should say and that South. It didn't get moved. The date didn't get moved. We don't even know if a call was made. For sure. But the fact that Team Clinton is able to do the could someone make a call thing that for Bernie Sanders supporters and for lots of progressives and liberals is wrong. And and I, Republicans. I, it feeds into the yes. narrative that, that Trump has very much run with that the Clintons establishment. Are, are establishment. They're corrupt. They've rigged the system. They're out for themselves. They're not out for you. That's it, what it's we also possible. The they just understand the system and yeah. that they're playing chess. While Bernie Sanders was playing checkers, lots and of folks thought a lot that, of the people in the Republican Party. Lots were of folks checkers. thought that Bernie Sanders never even got the checkerboard. I mean, like the, <laughs> this is the extent to which pe- people felt that he was shut out from any part of these games. And I think the the thing it appeals to is a sense that a lot of voters have that they don't have a checkerboard. That yeah, that they're cut out of this. They're and, playing jacks. And you know, however difficult the system may be, and however important it is to know how to navigate it, that they're not even players. A lot of them feel that way, at least. If you go to Trump rallies, they certainly feel that the system is not set up for them. That's right. And it isn't. In many cases, they have been dealt dirty by the system, economically speaking, perhaps culturally speaking, perhaps educationally speaking, all of these ways. And yes, it feeds a narrative that that is somehow all the fault of Bill and Hillary Clinton when we see emails from her campaign and no other campaign. Now, if we have an email that says, hey, you're Bill Daly. You're a powerful guy back in Illinois. I believe it was uh, an, an email to Bill Daly. H- how much would it take for us to go to the legislature and spread a little money around and move that primary? That's not what that email even said. I didn't say it did. Okay. I'm saying if we had an email that said that, I think you would have a basis for some pretty serious scandalous reaction. What we have is an email that says, hey, is there any leeway on when we have the Illinois primary in both parties? It would be a vote of the legislature. It would not be up to Bill Daley. And so what's up? What could we do? Is there a bill we could weigh in on? I guess that amounts to manipulation, but it doesn't really strike me that, A, it was successful, B, it it went anywhere, C, it would be particularly out of the normal realm of people discussing what was most advantageous to them prior to a game of anything, a game of anything. You set the rules, you decide the rules are going to apply to everybody, you try to figure out which rules will be advantageous to you. That's why some ballparks have one set of dimensions in baseball, and some ballparks have a different set of dimensions, and that's what we have here. Let's look at the emails for all the other campaigns before we decide that these people were uniquely devilish. No, and not saying at all that they were. I'm just saying stuff like this feeds a narrative that I've been hearing literally since I've been covering this campaign. Yes. Okay, let's take our first break. And when we come back, Republicans jumping on and off and then back on the Trump train. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call, open walk-in clinics in convenient places, 
help more moms get prenatal care, or use technology to find insights that lower healthcare costs. Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey, before we get back to the show, after this episode, if you're looking for some great new podcasts to check out, NPR's newest show, The Big Listen, has you covered. Host Lauren Ober introduces you to podcasts you might never have heard of and gives you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Find The Big Listen on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, back to the show. We're back. So even before last night, we saw some real gymnastics this week among several members of Congress running for re-election who unendorsed and then re-endorsed Donald Trump. Most notably, Ron, who? John Thune is the senator from South Dakota. Uh, He is the number three person in the leadership of the Senate Republican Party structure. That's a pretty big deal because it puts him in line to perhaps be Senate majority or minority leader at some point. Some people have talked about him as a potential vice presidential candidate. And if he came from a state that had any money, maybe he could even be a presidential candidate someday. Uh, He had said, much like John McCain, after what happened on Friday night with the video release, I can't, I can't, I can't be there anymore. Can't be with him anymore. After the debate on Sunday night and when the ship had been somewhat righted for Donald Trump, he came back and said, you know, I'm still planning to vote for him. Deb Fisher, who is a first-term senator from Nebraska, a state pretty much as safe for the Republicans as South Dakota, said much the same thing. On Friday night, she was out of there. Saturday, rather, she was out of there. Called on him to step aside. Called on him to step aside and make room for Mike Pence, which a number of Republicans have done. Then after the debate, she came back and said, well, I'm still planning to vote for Donald Trump, even though I'd rather vote for Mike Pence. Now, overall, you take 300 and some people who are governors and Republicans, senators and Republicans, and members of Congress and Republicans. And out of that whole population, about a quarter of them have walked away since Friday night. Well, I shouldn't say they've all walked away since Friday night because some had not been on board already. But the vast majority of them who have defected did so since Friday night, and only a handful of them have gone back. Now, we have a new set of allegations, and some of these people are really going to begin to feel whiplashed because they may feel like they have to turn around again. We'll see. I suspect they won't. I suspect at this point anyone who has defected and returned will remain on board and simply take their medicine on November 8th. So we talked about this before in an episode that is earlier on in your feed. I think it was our our Tuesday that's it. Emergency episode. Yeah. <laughs> but what does this mean for down ballot races? Is the Senate totally in play now? And what about the House? Well, Senate, yes. House, not so much. That's certainly the conventional wisdom. The Senate's been in play from the very beginning, if only because they've got 24 Republicans on the ballot and only 10 Democrats. And of those 10, only one looks at all vulnerable. And that one's pretty much a toss up. So the Democrats might not lose any. So if the Republicans lose any at all, the Senate's in play. Though there was a time where the Senate seemed less in play or it seemed like Republicans could hang on to the Senate. That time seems to have passed. Well, it was September. You remember September. That was the month when all the problems seemed to be on Hillary Clinton's side of the fence and the rain was all falling over there. And so in that month, 
an awful lot of people kind of came home to the party. And just as Sarah was saying, this is what Republicans do. It is a cohesive party. Historically, it has been a minority party most of the last century. And so they really hung together because they knew they had to. So they have been a loyal group by and large. Now, what we're seeing is really an unprecedented case of a hand grenade rolling across a small room and everybody trying to get out. Well, I think you see, you know, just the scattering that happened over the weekend in response to the Trump tape is, is just a sign of, of how, how much chaos there is and how much Republicans are concerned about down ballot. OK, so I know this is called the NPR Politics Podcast, but can we talk about policy just for a for minute? For five minutes, it's going to be the NPR Policy <sighs> Who's yes. Oh, Sarah. I know, that's bad. No, I want to learn. Tell me all that's about it. I'm, cu- I'm cutting off your subscription to Congressional Quarter. Okay. <laughs> okay, so this week, Hillary Clinton made a big announcement that no one noticed. You noticed. I noticed, but I'm a nerd like that. I What's love tax policy. And she released a big tax policy, Yeah, right? so she had already made a pledge in the campaign not to raise taxes on the middle class. Um, at one point, I asked her in a press conference what middle class means. She says people earning up to $250,000 a year. It's a high bar. That is a high bar, unless you're living in New York, and then it's like... Even then, it's still, still kind of a kind high, of high bar. bar. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> right. There you go. But so this week, the thing that had been missing is what she was offering for the middle class. And in fact, Donald Trump had come out with the tax plan and really talked a lot about how he thought it would potentially help the middle class. That's up for debate. But this week, Hillary Clinton came out with her tax proposal. It contains a few elements. One would be um, a doubling of the child tax credit uh, for families with young children. Another would be to make a larger share of that tax credit refundable for lower income people. And what a refundable tax credit means is you actually get cash back whether you owe taxes or not. Was it, so was there anything in this policy detail that surprised you? Or was this kind of in line with what she's been saying? I mean, this is, you know, in terms of tax policy, the tax credits are one of the levers that you can push to Mm -hmm. to move things. And actually, some of these ideas have been proposed by people like Paul Ryan. Huh. Yeah. I mean, isn't this a way sometimes that Democrats can engineer some of their policies? You know, if, if you go through the tax code and especially if you say things like tax cuts, tax credits, that's a little more Republican friendly. Yeah, it sounds Republican friendly. It is Republican friendly, but it's also a way of getting money back in the hands of people who are very poor and struggling or people who are middle class and struggling. And also increasing taxes on people in the wealthiest categories. Which she had proposed before. With the intention, of course, of balancing off some of this other money so that it does not contribute overly to a larger federal deficit. Moving on, Sarah, you've been out on the trail. You've been spending a lot of time with the Trump campaign, talking to voters. And you were at Liberty University yesterday with Mike Pence. Right. Tell people what Liberty University is and why this was so interesting. So it's a big evangelical Christian college. I think about 15,000 students plus a bunch more uh, online. And uh, it's an influential place in politics. Jerry Falwell Jr. uh, was one of the early evangelical leaders to endorse Donald Trump and sort of help bring around a lot of other evangelical leaders. Uh, He got a lot of criticism from that from within, but he did it nonetheless. And uh, Trump went there. One of, I think, the funniest moments of the campaign that we've talked about before, the two Corinthians moment. Remember remember that. Got up in front of Corinthians, walked into a a Liberty University. All those Christian college kids and mispronounced second Corinthians. 
so that's sort of the history of, of Liberty. But yeah, um, you know, Mike Pence, I've noticed, has been going to a lot of places like Iowa and Nebraska and meeting with pastors in Colorado and going to Liberty in Virginia, places where there are a lot of conservative Christians, because that's kind of where he fits in best. And um, he, you know, I think for weeks has really been trying to sort of shore that up. And he definitely heard that this week at Liberty. You know, it takes a big man to know when you're wrong, to admit it, to express remorse and apologize. And Donald Trump did just that. You know, I was asked on a television program the next morning how I, as a Christian, could move beyond those moments and accept an apology. And I was happy to explain that to the television host. I said, you know, as, as a believer, we're called, to, we're called to aspire to live godly lives, but also we recognize that we all fall short. And it's not about condoning what is said and done. It's about believing in grace and forgiveness. As Christians, we are called to forgive, even as we've been forgiven. So you hear him there 100% speaking their language and saying, you know, you might be struggling with Donald Trump talking about groping women and using obscene language to talk about their genitals. But God forgives, and Trump has apologized and we owe him forgiveness. But Trump has not yet said, I asked God for forgiveness, has he? In fact, on occasion, Donald Trump has said that he has never asked for forgiveness, considers himself a Christian, but has never seen a need to confess or ask for forgiveness. Now, we're not going to get all theological here, but uh, but anyone with any sort of familiarity with evangelical Christianity knows that's a problem. And yet, um, as I talk to these students and faculty members in some cases, uh, the thing I heard from a lot, I mean, there are those who are voting for Hillary Clinton, at least some students. There are those who are voting third party, people like Gary Johnson. Uh, but most students in my unscientific anecdotal conversations, what I heard over and over again was, I really am not comfortable with Donald Trump. I really don't like the things I heard from him. This is not what my faith teaches. But I'm going to vote for him because he's closer to my values, at least, than Hillary Clinton. And I and I see this as a really in reality Third party's not going to win. It's going to be him or Hillary. Uh, and, and the big issue for a lot of these students is abortion and the Supreme Court. And they see Hillary Clinton is a, a supporter of abortion rights. They know that. They at least hope that Donald Trump will follow through on his commitments to choose anti-abortion rights uh, justices. Sam, you are out reporting, too. Yeah. You were in Georgia. I was in Atlanta. My first time there, I actually loved Atlanta. Did you go to the Coke Museum? Did I didn't you do go that, to CNN? but I got some really great food recommendations from lots of folks on Twitter. So thank you, Twitter family, for letting me know where to be when I was there. Had a great time. The objective for me being there was to kind of get behind the numbers of the black vote this election. We know, and we've known for a while, that... Um, Hillary Clinton has overwhelmingly high numbers of support in the black community. And for those that do vote, most of them will vote for her. But what I've been noticing for months is that behind those kind of lopsided numbers are some really mixed emotions about a lot of things. Uh, You've got three things going on. You've got Trump, a candidate many black voters see as racist. Clinton a candidate lots of black voters aren't excited about, and an ongoing barrage of pretty horrible stories this year of black people who are unarmed being shot by police. And what I saw over and over again in Atlanta talking to black voters is that they're pretty bummed out this year. And some of why they're bummed out is because it's such whiplash from how happy they felt eight years ago when the first black president took the oath of office. I talked to one woman named Kalina Bowler. She's in TV production. And she was recounting to me the day of his first inauguration. And she said she was the only black person on this TV set. 
But all of her white co-workers had a TV screen. They gave her the front seat to watch. Here. When I walked in, it was almost like they rolled out the red carpet yeah. for Kalina. <laughs> they rolled it out. They said, oh, come sit. They let me sit in the front. I was right. And, and you know, I have an afro right now. So I was, like, blocking people's view, you know. And I started crying. And next thing I know, a tissue box showed up. I mean, it was. I did. It was weird. But I said, you know what? I was okay with it. I said, let me have this. Yeah, so she was talking to her friend, Brittany Bailey. That was eight years ago. Flash forward to now, I asked her how she feels about this election. I oftentimes just want to go home, get under my bed, (laughs) and just stay there. But I can't. People are bummed out. I talked to lots more folks. Here's kind of a waterfall of all of the negative ways that black voters are seeing this election. Yeah, no, I'm exhausted. I feel like I'm watching a reality TV show run amok. And in two words, the circus. Mayhem. What I imagine politics to have been like in the 60s, that's what it feels like right now. Stockholm Syndrome. And this is Hillary Clinton's firewall. Black voters are her firewall. And so even if they show up, it will not be with the fervor and excitement that they did eight years ago and four years ago. And that is something. So if they're not going to show up out of passion for their candidate, though, will they show up out of fear of the other candidate? None of these folks that I talked to specifically said that they weren't going to show up. They're going to vote, they said. One woman told me, she said, quote, the times are scary, but I'm not scared. But they did say that they think some of their friends and cousins and aunts and uncles that voted that first Obama term might not show up again. It's the folks that were on the fringe and voted for Obama because it was so historic. That might be hard to get all of those folks again. That said, and obviously I spend a lot of my time hanging out at Hillary Clinton rallies, so, you know, take that with that grain of salt. But I've talked to a lot of black voters who are super enthusiastic, a lot, of, especially African-American women who say, mm-hmm. I was all for Barack, yeah. but I wanted to vote for Hillary, too, and now I get but, to, and this is, like, a big deal. Totally, but here's the deal. That's a self-selecting crowd. People of that go to is. politicians' rallies like the politicians a lot. You know, Barack Obama's whole campaign was hope and change and we're going to bring people together in blue and red and we're all one. Maybe it was naivete. Maybe the the electorate was completely naive about what Barack Obama was promising. But that promise, that mood of that campaign is very different from the campaign that we're seeing now. And having a black family in the White House has just brought to the forefront a lot of conversations that weren't happening about race and politics together. And, you know, there are some conservatives that say Obama has exacerbated racism in his time in office. There are some liberals that say that Republicans have been mean to Obama because of race. But either way, we have had to confront some ill feelings on both sides about race. Um, and it's it's not pretty. One thing that has surprised me about Obama a little bit or the reaction to Obama is I never expected conservative Republicans to get behind him in any way. But, uh, you know, obviously the memory of the Clinton years are still very much with us. And, you know, one thing that I don't think you hear about a lot is the fact that, you know, Barack and Michelle Obama seem to have a strong marriage. There have been no sex scandals surrounding Barack Obama. He's raised two daughters who seem like good kids. They seem like altogether, you know, pretty well turned out kids. Regardless of what you think of his policies, that's something that I would think most people could respect. And I I don't hear, uh, you know, there's very little talk about that. And even from some of the people who really seem to value those values and have been very critical of candidates like Bill Clinton and even you know Donald Trump's moral failings. Uh, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just we focus on the negative more than the positive. 
Okay, let's take one more break. And when we come back, your questions and can't let it go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO. Introducing Vice News Tonight, the first news program of its kind to air on HBO, providing an indispensable source of up-to-date news every weeknight at 7.30 p.m. on HBO, or stream it on HBO Now. All right, we're back. Time for your questions. We will answer more of them in our weekly listener mail episode, which will be out Monday morning. And reminder, you can email your questions or record them as a voice memo to nprpolitics at npr.org. First question today is a recorded question from across the pond. Hello there, NPR Politics Podcast. This is Martin Teff from Leeds in the United Kingdom. I'm a big fan of the show and I've got a question for you. We're constantly talking about Trump and Clinton tweeting, but I want to know if it's actually them personally delivering those tweets or are those accounts really run by their campaign teams? I'd be really grateful for any insight you have on the matter. Take care. Bye. The answer is yes. <laughs> it's, it's a mix of things. Sam, do you want to take Trump tweets because you've done a story I did on this a whole before? story about Trump's Twitter strategy. Um, so Trump has said before that during the day he dictates his tweets to staff, exclamation points and all. But at night and early in the morning, he tweets himself. And from that revelation, uh, folks that follow this stuff closely have been able to determine that when a Trump tweet is sent from an Android, it's really from him. And when a Trump tweet is sent from an iPhone, it's from his staff. Um, I talked to a data scientist named Dave Robinson who broke this all down. He said that those two tweets are very different. Uh, The Android tweets coming from Trump himself rarely use hashtags or links or photos. And they, on average, have 40% more angry words. They're 40% angrier than the ones sent by staff. Yeah, and it's it's pretty easy to tell. Uh, Humorously, earlier this week, um, there was a Trump tweet that misspelled a word, and that was sent from an Android phone. So Trump did that. Trump did that. And then, like, that tweet disappeared, and a new version that was spelled correctly but with all the other same words was sent from an iPhone. We've seen that happen a couple of times this week. And so you get the sense that Trump, you know, he's got something to say. He tweets it out. And then maybe sometimes it needs a little revision. As far as Hillary Clinton's tweets, the ones that she sends herself, she marks with an H, right? That's right. So any tweet that has a dash H at the end is a Hillary Clinton tweet. Those tend to be a little more heartfelt, often responding to world events, things like that. Um, The rest of the tweets, all the mad trolling that the Clinton campaign does, That is coming from her campaign, and one presumes a room full of people making sure that everything's just right. Young people who get the internet. Who are wearing flannel or chambray like you do, Sam. (laughs) Next question from Mike, who emails, hey, y'all. Hey, y'all back. (laughs) He writes, he feels like he has to say that. New poll out of Utah showing Evan McMullen in a statistical tie with both Clinton and Trump is sort of shocking. What is the likelihood of McMullen actually taking Utah And if so, what are the implications here? Keep up the good work, Mike. Thank you, Mike. We've been wanting to talk about this. So we should say first who he is. Mike Lee. He's uh, the senator from Utah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be hilarious if Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, was sending us emails? Yeah, it would be. Absolutely. Or Gary Herbert, the the, the governor of Utah, who has also unendorsed uh, Donald Trump and said he can't bear him. Evan McMullen. 
is a former Capitol Hill staffer who uh, has been a professional staff member um, for members of Congress, and he is a candidate for president, and you can vote for him in the state of Utah and some other states where he is qualified for the ballot. Uh, he is uh, more obscure yet than Gary Johnson and Jill Stein by a great deal, and really obviously is not taken seriously anywhere. But, but In Utah. But if he were to rise by a few percentage points, and I believe the very latest poll out of uh, Utah now shows Donald Trump with a point or two advantage. But if he were to rise, if the other major candidates were to fall uh, a little further and not much further because he is just below a tie with them, he could win the electoral college votes of the state of Utah, which would be kind of exciting because we haven't seen anyone uh, get any votes uh, other than the two major party nominees in the Electoral College in many, many years. Especially a candidate whose campaign is, what, just a few months old? And let us remember that Mormons, number one, have a big problem with Donald Trump in general and didn't uh, give him very many votes. It was his worst primary. And secondly, they have a specific problem with his once announced ban on Muslims ending, entering the country. He later walked that back and said people from a certain part of the world. But the essence of it, the attack on mu Muslims that he was held responsible for was very disturbing to Mormons because they are a very small, relatively speaking, religious minority in the country as a whole. And they're in Utah largely because they were at one time driven out of exactly. another place. They have very, a much, of persecution. very much persecuted. All right. Final letter is from August in Tennessee. Hey, friends. August from the University of Memphis here. There is no doubt Ken Bone is the newest accidental Internet celebrity. Do you think his popularity is telling of America's underlying craving for more wholesome, honest temperament in politics? In other words, do you think we found his nature refreshing? You guys rule August. All right. So you, Sam, were on to this early. I, I kind of missed Kim it because yeah. I was fact-checking. So this was one of the undecided voters that Gallup picked that was in the audience at the last debate. He was one of the last folks to ask a question, but Internet took off on his outfit. He wore a Christmas red half-zip cable-knit sweater. After this happened, the sweater sold out. He's been on all kinds of TV. Last I saw, his Twitter account had 200,000 followers, and now he's selling his own Kinbone t-shirts. But I totally agree with this question from August. He's a nice guy, and he was likable, and he took all the coverage in good stride. And people want niceness this election. My one word of advice to Ken Bone uh, would be to... Cash in. Stop now. But cash in, but also know when your 15 minutes is up. And at the appointed time, I don't overstay your welcome. We can all think back to Chewbacca Lady, the woman right, who keep, wore the Chewbacca mask and I laughed. I still love her. I love her too, but she went too far. She like tried to cover a Michael Jackson song later and everyone was like, stop singing now. I don't know. I had a little bit of a different reaction to it. Like I... I, there was a lot of love for Ken Bone on the internet, I have to say, but it also felt like it was kind of ironic love, like, because it's the internet, and, like, sort of couched in a little bit of maybe, like, mockery. High class, low class. Yeah, yeah. And, and, like, um, you know, so this happened in St. Louis. He's a Missouri guy. I'm a Kansas City girl. Like, I just looked at him and I was like, you know, he's kind of like balding and less, like, maybe not 100% stylish glasses on and just looked like a really ordinary Midwestern guy. And part of me was like, oh, are you picking on my people? <laughs> yeah, I'm just checking which percentage of hip I think my glasses are. <laughs> uh, Ken, I think, also represented a sort of sweet representation of Americanism and a want to believe in both of you and want to believe in both of your parties and want to believe that this is a great country now and can be even greater in the future. And I think a lot of people identify with that. 
Thanks for writing, August. That was a tough one. And now it's time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we end the show each week, talking about something we cannot let go of, politics or otherwise. Sam Sanders, you have My, something. I have a thing. I have found a new role model. There is a 19-year-old <laughs> black man in Illinois who has been throwing political polls the entire campaign season. How do you even do how? that? I'll tell you One why. political poll. One political poll. So, um... The biggest outlier in the polling of the candidates uh, this campaign season has been a poll from the University of Southern California and the Los Angeles Times, their daybreak poll. It has always been off from the rest of the pack. the Trump campaign cites it all the time. Because it has Trump up a lot. Um, Turns out that this poll shares all of their data, so anyone else can go back to replicate and check the numbers. The folks at the New York Times upshot did so, and they found that one person— has been throwing all these results. Uh, An unnamed 19-year-old black man from Illinois. Uh, The reason that he had such an outsized influence is because with most polls, um, you give an extra weight to groups that are underrepresented. So um, young black men are underrepresented, so they weigh them. The thing is, with this poll, they weighed him too much. In some poll takings, they weighed him 30 times. <laughs> 30 times times yeah, more than any yeah. other person in the poll. And then on top of it, turns out this one 19-year-old black voter in Illinois is actually an outlier for most black voters because he's a Trump supporter. So he really skewed results. So we need to explain that this is a tracking poll, that they did not choose a brand new sample. They keep the same poll, guys. They kept the same sample and tracked their minds changing or not changing over a period of weeks. Mm. So the poll numbers remained very much the same, even when Trump was otherwise going down or otherwise coming up. The poll numbers remained the same. And the reason was because they were talking to the same people and they did not happen to be particularly volatile. And they were overweighting one person who was not particularly representative of the black vote. Yeah. All I'm going to say is 19-year-old unnamed black man in in Illinois, I want to exert as much power as you one day. (laughs) Sarah, what can't you let go of? So this is going to refer back to another Can't Let It Go many weeks ago. I don't know if you all will remember, but um, we played some tape of Donald Trump at his rallies talking about what a sensational movement he's leading and how much media coverage he's getting, especially on Time magazine. And we had all these clips, which I'm not going to play again, but of him saying, I'm all, I've been on the cover of Time magazine so many times. Well, that was the week that Time Magazine published the Meltdown cover. Do you I remember, remember this? Oh, I do. Very I remember ugly. finding it, it at an airport. And you found it, yeah, it was the orange, sort of the orange face with the yellow hair, and it was melting. Well, guys, this next week, the Time Magazine cover, it's called Total Meltdown. I don't know if Let you've seen see. it. Oh, it's like totally melted. Yeah. It's just like a It's flat. the same image, only now it's been reduced to a little puddle of color. <laughs> Exactly. And so the first one happened around the time that there was, you know, yet another series of sort of shakeups in the campaign. And it was not too long after the conventions. It was was August, actually. But here we are. We've just talked about what's going on right now. And it's total meltdown. So we'll see if uh, Trump touts being on the cover of Time magazine yet again. So, Tamara, what can you not let go? Yesterday was Yom Kippur. Go to synagogue, as I do on Yom Kippur some other times, but not as frequently as I should. And um, the rabbi gets up and she starts giving her sermon. And and the message is really about you're fasting, you're miserable. And then you you come back and you are renewed and and have new focus and new purpose in life. That is the idea, she says, of Yom Kippur, which is nice. And so she's sort of talking about this idea. There is another year ahead and the pen 
is in your own hand. And then the music starts. I was younger than I am now when I was doing the best I could. That sounds familiar. Yep. hopes and dreams of a younger man trying to always do good. This is the canter. History. <laughs> So this is Hamilton. I'm sitting in synagogue, and all of a sudden, the cantor and three members of the choir start doing Hamilton. Hamilton wow. is literally everywhere this year. You know, when I was growing up, it was like worship bands were the big thing in the evangelical churches trying to be like more hip. I didn't know it was spreading beyond. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of sermons that had Hamilton references, I'm just going to guess. But we actually had Hamilton music. Was it a hit in the synagogue? It was. I will tell you that by the end, like, everybody was in tears, basically. Wow. And maybe I was just sad about the whole Aaron Burr Hamilton thing. Mm-hmm. But it was, all, it was just like a really powerful message, and it was thank good. Thank you, Lin-Manuel. Yeah, thank cool. you, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Rabbi Amy Schwartzman at Temple Road F. Shalom. Shout out. So Ron, yeah, what can't you let go of? Let's stay in the cultural realm. How many days have you had the first story that pops up on your phone ruin your day? Every day. Uh, Every day since like last summer. This morning was an exception. Woke up, little light down there on the phone. It says, Bob Dylan, comma, 75. And I thought, oh, no. And then it said, has just been awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. What we need. And as a child of the 60s, I must say that if you go back and you listen to the magnificent bitterness of Highway 61 revisited or even don't think twice, it's all right. Set aside for a moment the blowing in the wind and all the upbeat anthems and then take that career forward to something like To Make You Feel My Love, which a lot of people heard Adele sing and thought yeah. she wrote it. Oh, I think Dylan. it was covered by a country band in the 90s, too. It was covered by a country band in the 90s, too, and, and lovely, a lovely cover as well. But a lot of people would hear that song and never, ever think it could possibly be Bob Dylan. The Nobel Prize for Literature, first American since Toni Morrison in 1993, and I must say, gave me chills, still does. That's so cool. That's Don Gagne awesome. is happy about this as well. For yeah. those that want some further background from NPR personalities on Bob Dylan, one of my favorite public radio stories Ever, of all time ever. comes from Don Gagne, who's also a big fan of Bob Dylan. He basically did a rundown on how one of Dylan's classic albums and songs came to be. It is seven minutes of perfection. I love this story. So all of you listening, check out this story. It is called The Day Dylan Got It Right. And like Sam, you will stone? tweet that, no doubt. Like I will tweet it stone. too. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And we'll also put it on the NPR Politics Facebook page. You guys will love it. That is a wrap on this week. Our usual episode of Listener Mail will be up on Monday morning. We'll have an episode of Recap and Analysis following Wednesday night's debate. Until then, you know the drill. We're on the radio, the NPR One app, and at NPR.org. And always email us at nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, Bob Dylan fan. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 